0: Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. My wife is actually out of town this weekend. I I was just in Gatlinburg last night and drove back late last night. Her little brother's got a soccer tournament down there. So I actually had really good sleep last night because <laughs> she, had, she had our little one, little Brooks Ballard. So I'm preaching on a lot of sleep. Probably the best sleep I've had ever. So it was, it, it was really nice. And just an update, last time I preached uh, here, I talked about me and my wife's little annual uh, Christmas tree fight. If those of you who were there to remember a uh, little update, I got the Christmas tree up first try. First try, no problems. It was straight. It was great. Wonderful. But that's beside the point. (laughs) I want to start today by asking you a question. Have you ever been in a situation, in a circumstance where you have feared for your life? You know, when you're 16 to 18 years old, if you're anything like me, you kind of live with the if I die, I die kind of attitude, right? Like we did, and it leads you to do some crazy stuff. I mean, I remember after youth group on Wednesdays, we would scale the side of our 30-foot church just to get on the roof and hang out after church. And I mean, like, you fall, like, we're going to (laughs) die. But we didn't think about that. We just wanted to get on the roof, you know, and hang out. It was pretty up there. We'd go to parks and hang out, and I would walk on top of the monkey bars instead of swinging below them, right? And then when I got to Chicago for my freshman year of college, me and my friends thought it would be a great idea to what we aptly named to do the polar plunge is what we called it. So early in February, every year we would put on our swim trunks and a t-shirt and we would walk 15 minutes down to Lake Michigan in the freezing cold. And then we would jump into Lake Michigan and see who could stay in there the longest. And then we would walk back in our wet clothes 15 minutes back to campus. It wasn't our brightest idea. We were sick every year after we did it. But hey, it was a good time. But we just did not, right, the the idea that like, hey, this was probably not safe, this is probably not a good idea, never crossed my mind. Maybe I was immature, yes, the frontal lobe of my brain hadn't developed yet. And so you just, you do some crazy things. Fast forward now to literally just last summer, my wife had asked me to get on our roof and paint this portion of our house. And I didn't think anything of it. You know, I'm not really fearful of heights. And so I put the ladder up. I climb up that thing so fast. I jump off the ladder. Our roof is metal. It's a little slick. And I kind of catch a glimpse of how high I am. And my knees start to shake. I'm like, oh, goodness. For this moment, I'm I'm afraid of heights. Heights like, this is scary. I've never felt this before. And so I quickly climbed down the ladder, called my friend who had rented, you know, one of those bucket trailers that, you know, the telephone workers use to fix the poles. And so I get that over to my house, level it out, get in the bucket, hit the up button, up we go. And I'm leaning over the bucket, still trying to paint this portion of my house. And although like I'm perfectly safe, I was even so safe in that moment. I like clipped, you know, it has a little clip and I clipped it into my belt and everything. But I was still scared. I was still very fearful for my life. I was like, what, ha- what happens if I fall? What's going to happen to my wife? You know, she was newly pregnant. What happens if I fall and I live and, and I'm paralyzed? Like these thoughts start rushing through my head. And as I was preparing for this sermon this week, we're going to be in Acts chapter 6 and 7 as we walk through the life of Stephen. I was trying to put myself in Stephen's shoes as he's literally like the walls are caving in around him. These angry people are are coming with stones ready to kill him and what that must have felt like. And the question I asked myself is how does that fear of, of losing our life fit in to our Christian walk? Because here's the reality. For for most of us in this room, we did not have to sacrifice a lot of uh, earthly comforts to follow after Christ. We didn't have to sacrifice our early comforts to pursue Him, to walk in His salvation. That thought is very foreign to us. And we'd be amiss today if we didn't mention that there are people all over the world who do risk their lives on a daily basis to follow after Christ. There are people who risk their lives just to have a Bible in their house or to meet together in someone's basement and do so quietly because of the fear of of, of that persecution or being thrown in prison. Like that is a very true reality for the world that we live in. But for us and the circumstance we are, we don't feel that weight as much. You know, we walked into church this morning, most most of us with Bible in hands, not afraid that we were going to be persecuted because we were holding the Bible. You know, we just had worship time singing as loud as we wanted to without fear of that persecution. But my goal today is not for us to feel or make you feel guilty about that. The Lord has you here in America where it is free to preach the word of God, to, to worship for a reason. He has a purpose and plan for that. Just as he has people all over the world who are suffering persecution for the faith, For a reason, right? We should not feel guilty for where the Lord has us right now. My goal today is also for us not to walk in and think like, oh, doom and gloom, you know, persecution's coming to America next week. And, you know, we better buckle down and and be ready for that. I have no idea, right? I just don't. And if you're honest with yourself, you don't have any idea of that either. Only the Lord knows if or when that level of persecution where we fear for our lives and worship is going to come. So that's not my goal either. My goal today is for you and me to walk in the shoes of Stephen to try to think about how is he feeling during this moment. um, And just walk through what this story is primarily trying to teach us. So if you would, with me, open up to Acts chapter 6. And we will start there. And I know a lot of you have opened up already and you look and you're like, (laughs) Bryce, that is 75 verses. Acts chapter 6 and 7 is 75 verses. Yes, you know, set your clocks. We're going to be here for another two hours. No, like we're going to walk through the beginning, kind of the set up to this famous speech that Stephen gives. We're going to summarize Stephen's speech and then we'll walk through what happens after he preaches that speech. So if you would with me, Acts chapter 6 verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. All right. And so obviously we know early on in our study of Acts, the local church is coming together and they're pooling their resources and they're distributing it as they see need. Well, right off the bat here in the early church, there's a little, little bit of a cultural discrepancy, right? Um, which is very relatable to today. You have the Jews who spoke Hebrew, right? Those are the Hebrews in verse one. And then you had the Jews who spoke Greek and were part of the Greek culture. That would be your Hellenists. And the Hellenists come to the apostles and they're like, hey, we feel like you are treating the Hebrews Better than you're treating the widows of the Hellenists. And this is a problem. We feel like they're missing out on the daily distribution. And so there's cultural, there's racial, even tension happening in verse 1. Well, Let's look at the apostles' response, verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. This is what the disciples are not saying. They're not saying that the, the serving of tables, right, the distribution of, you know, the pot of, of resources that they're using to help out the church is not a valuable ministry. That is not what they're saying. They're not saying like, you know, us as preachers of the word and us as, you know, the ones who are really sharing the gospel and all that stuff. Like we're more important than you and we're more important than we shouldn't have to be bogged down by this. This is not what they're saying. They're not devaluing the ministry of the serving of tables. What they are saying is that their plate is full, right? They feel like we can't do this well, what we've been especially trained and equipped to do in the preaching of the word and do this ministry and the redistribution of of wealth well. We're at our end. We are spread too thin. So they make a decision. They say this. Verse three, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So they decide, we're gonna pick seven Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, and we're gonna elect you, and you are going to be the bridge from the Hellenist widows to the Jewish Hebrew-speaking Jews. This was, this was their idea, this was their goal. They said, are, you know basically, are you guys okay with that? And they respond, And they say this, verse five, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and I'm gonna botch some of these names here, and Procorius, and Nicnor, and Timid, I'm probably saying these all wrong, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Then they sat before the apostles and they prayed and laid hands on them. I love how the early church handles this situation. Like, that's a touchy situation. That's a, that, that, this is an issue. And they handle it with such grace, and they handle it so well. They elect the Hellenists. The Hellenists are now the bridge for the Hebrews. And then they lay their hands on these seven men, signifying, you know, you are now going to fulfill that role. You are our representatives in this ministry. Go in and, and, and do this. And we will continue to devote ourselves to the preaching of God's word. But notice in that list, after Stephen's name, it gives a little extra description, right? Stephen's going to be our main character in this story today. And as we walk through his story, I want you to pay attention to how many times Stephen is directly connected with the Holy Spirit in this passage. He is going to be continually, we're going to be continually reminded by the author, Stephen and the Holy Spirit, Stephen and the Holy Spirit, over and over and over again, So Stephen is elected as one of these Hellenistic representatives, and let's see where his ministry leads him. Verse 8, and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. This is the second time already in this passage that Stephen has been directly connected to the Holy Spirit. Grace and power, if you flip back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles, they were filled with power. Stephen, being filled with the Holy Spirit, is continuing going about his earthly ministry. But there's a problem. Verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Syrians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. An argument arises. Stephen is doing his ministry. He's doing his thing. He's full of the Holy Spirit, and an argument arises. A dispute arises. They're not happy with what Stephen is doing. So, They do something. Verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Third time, Stephen in direct correlation with the Holy Spirit. They could not withstand the spirit in which Stephen was speaking. So apparently they're debating, they're talking about things. Stephen's doing his ministry, and they can't win. They can't win the debate. They can't win this argument or debate that they are having because why? Because Stephen was a great rhetorician because Stephen was especially trained in theology, because Stephen had taken you know 100 apologetics classes. Those are good things and those can equip the believer, but no, the text specifically says because Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit, he continued to preach with boldness to them and they could not win, they could not win. Which leads me to kind of a side point here in our message. I think for a lot of us, we're afraid to share the gospel, and I think we're afraid to share the gospel because maybe we feel inadequate. Maybe we feel like we aren't equipped enough. Like I said, we, we haven't taken these theology classes. We haven't taken these apologetic classes. I don't have enough Bible verses memorized. Whatever that may be, understand that the Holy Spirit living in you is enough for the gospel to grab some, grab hold of someone's heart and make them His. The Holy Spirit is enough living in you to give you boldness and wisdom and truth and power to preach the gospel and that Holy Spirit grab hold of that person's heart and make that person his. This is what Stephen is doing. They don't like this. They don't like that they keep losing to Stephen. So verse 11, they're gonna be a little crafty. They say, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they take Stephen and they take him before the council and they're going to give two accusations for why Stephen should be before the council and why Stephen should be reprimanded for what he's doing. The first they're going to say Stephen is speaking against the law. Stephen is speaking against the law. First they say Moses. Well Moses in their mind is in direct correlation with the law. Stephen is probably talking about Jesus being the fulfillment of the law, right? The purpose of the law to show us that we can't do it and we're in need of a savior and Christ has done it. They're not gonna like that. This is not gonna be a fan for the Jewish person who believes that Jesus is not the Messiah. They're not gonna be a fan of that. And the second accusation, accusation they give him is that he's speaking against the temple. For them, the temple is where the presence of God lives, God's presence is in the Holy of Holies, and the only access to that presence is in that place. So they're saying Stephen is speaking basically against God, as they know him to be. These are some pretty big accusations they're bringing before Stephen. And it does say they were false witnesses, but even if they were true, what Stephen is speaking is not false. But they bring it before the council, and they say, this man needs to be reprimanded because, one, he's speaking against the law, and two, he's speaking against the Jewish people of the temple. And so then verse 15, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was that of an angel. This is the third time we see Jesus in connection with the Holy Spirit, the presence of God. The last time we've seen someone's face shine like that of an angel is with Moses the Old Testament. Moses, as he comes down from Mount Sinai, as he's been in the presence of God, his face shining so bright, he even puts a veil over it. What is this connection doing? It's saying Stephen is doing these things filled with the Holy Spirit, and it props up Stephen's speech. They look at Stephen after they've made these accusations, and Stephen's face is shining like that of an angel, and that leaves Stephen to boldly proclaim his message So Stephen's speech is next, and like I said, we're not going to read through Stephen's entire speech. I will say most people will read Stephen's speech, and they'll read it as, you know, oh, this is a historical summary of what has happened all the way from Abraham all the way to the coming of Christ. And yes, it functions as that, and you can go through and read that and see how how God worked throughout history to the coming of Christ. And I could see how Stephen is explaining and reminding the people he's talking to about this, but this isn't his primary point. As you read through his speech, you'll notice that Stephen is continuing to bring up where they had rejected God and yet God still chose to deliver them over and over and over again. He's talking about people that God had placed over them as leaders and those people were rejected by the people they were leading. And yet God still chose to redeem, to deliver Israel through those people. You think about Moses, who God commissioned, you know, go and lead Israel, and he comes and he murders an Egyptian. The next day, he's going and he's talking to the Jewish people who are fighting. He's like, hey, stop fighting, and they reject. He goes and he runs. But yet through Moses, they are delivered from Egypt. He mentions Joseph, and Joseph, who again, being rejected by his 11 brothers, sent down to Egypt, and yet through that rejection, God uses Joseph to deliver his people from famine. And then he culminates with, of course, talking about Jesus Christ, the one that we ultimately, all of us, rejected as our leader, as our God. And because of that, he was crucified. And yet, through the ultimate act of rejection, we see the ultimate act of deliverance. And so Stephen gives this speech, showing them all these areas where they have rejected God, and yet he still chose to deliver his people. But he ends his speech pretty boldly. At the beginning of his speech, he says my brothers and fathers, you know, he starts very respectful, very calm. But as he goes throughout his speech, he gets a little more pointed. He gets a little more bold. And it leads us to the end of his speech in chapter 7, verse 51. It says this, you stiff-necked people... Wow, that's a, that's a grave change from the beginning, right? You brothers and fathers. Now it's you stiff-necked people, right? You people who can only see your way and one way. You people who can't look up and see God and how he's been using uh, his, his chosen people throughout history to deliver. You can't see it because you're stiff-necked. You only see one way. Uncircumcised in hearts and ears. They're really not going to like this, Right? Circumcision being a sign of of salvation, an outward sign of following after God. And he says, you know, you might be circumcised on the outside, but your heart is uncircumcised. You have not been changed by the person of Jesus Christ. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Those are some pretty bold words. Stephen stands very boldly in proclaiming and saying, like, this is, this is what your history has shown, rejection and yet God still choosing to deliver. And in the ultimate act of rejection, you rejected Christ. This is not going to make them happy. Look at their response, verse fifty-four. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. It gives me like chills. It gives me goosebumps when you think about that. It's like, oh, they're so mad. They're grinding their teeth. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, the fourth time, we see Stephen in direct correlation with the Holy Spirit. He's full of the Holy Spirit in this moment. Gazed into heaven. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. This is unique. This is one of the most unique verses in all of the New Testament. The New Testament only mentions Christ as sitting next to the right hand of God the Father. But yet in this verse, Christ is standing next to the right hand of God the Father. So what's happening here? Obviously, this is significant, right? The only time that we see this, this has some weighty meaning to it. I encourage you, it's really fun to study. Pop up a commentary this this week, check it out. But Basically, kind of the three views of this is either one, Jesus is standing as judge. He's standing and saying the people that are accusing you of not following after me are wrong. And so he stands in judgment of them. The second option, Jesus is standing as an advocate for Stephen. Jesus is standing and saying, what you're saying is true, and I am behind you, and I am standing with you in the moment of this persecution. And your third option is Jesus is standing as a welcome, good and faithful servant, well done. Jesus is standing as a readiness for Stephen to say, it is time for you to enter into heaven. You have done a good work. Whatever side you choose to to fall on, whatever opinion you have here in this moment, it is very, very significant, that Christ is standing with Stephen, standing with him. Stephen is not alone. Verse 56, he decides to exclaim to them and tell them what he's seeing. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God the Father. He mentioned Son of Man. Son of Man is also a statement that is only used by Christ. This is the only other time in the New Testament where Christ is mentioned as the Son of Man. Christ is the only one who claims himself to be the Son of Man. But yet Stephen is saying, here is the Son of Man standing next to the right hand of God. This is going to make them mad. They do not believe that Jesus has been risen from the dead. And yet Stephen exclaims that he sees him as a risen person from the dead. This is really going to be the climax of the story. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears and they rushed at him. You know, I think like a, a, a stampede of toddlers or something, you know, they like, stick their fingers in their ears and they're screaming, refusing to hear what you're saying, right? Like you, you could say anything at that point. They're not going to hear you. They're so mad. They're so frustrated. They're so illogical. What has once been a trial and an organized council is now an angry mob. And they come running at Stephen. Verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city and they stone him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. In this moment, the persecution of the church, the hinges are wide open. This is going to lead to widespread persecution for what we have seen since this moment to now. This opportunity, this this circumstance led to the church being persecuted for all of history from that point to here. Verse 59, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out. Now pay attention to these next two quotes. Because what Stephen cries out, again, directly connects him to the Holy Spirit and the person of Jesus Christ. What Stephen cries out is very similar to what Christ cries out on the cross right before his death. He says this. He calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Brothers and sisters, if we are not prepared to die with Christ, we are surely not prepared to live with Christ. I must make a caveat when I make that statement. Because I think that statement can, although being true, can be dangerous. Because when I make that statement, if you're not prepared to die with Christ, we are surely not prepared to live with Christ. Our first reaction is to rely on our own strength. Our first reaction is to say, no, I, I will I I love him too much. I'm too dedicated to him. In my power, in my strength, I will be willing to give my life for the person of Christ. And brothers and sisters, I promise you, if you are relying on your own strength in that moment of persecution or trial, we will fail. We will run. We will hide. Because it is not in us. Our own strength cannot bring us to that point. Think back, rewind to the person of Peter before he is filled with the Holy Spirit. We see Peter at the end of the Gospels and Jesus is like, hey, Peter, you're going to reject me. And Peter's like, no, I would never. I'm too dedicated to you. I love you too much. I would never do that. And then yet, here we see Peter deny Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. Peter, in the midst of relying on his own strength to follow after the person of Christ, fails. Fast forward to the beginning of Acts. And we see Peter receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descends upon Peter and all the power and the grace and the wisdom and the truth that come with the Holy Spirit as he descends upon Peter. All of a sudden, Peter turns. He preaches a bold gospel message and 3,000 people come to know the Lord that day. Why? Because Peter was a good rhetorician? because, Because Peter was trained theologically or apologetically? No, because Peter had the Holy Spirit living in him. Something different than what he didn't have. Before. Brothers and sisters, the same Holy Spirit that lived in Jesus, as Jesus denies the temptation that Satan offers him in the desert, is the same Holy Spirit that lives in you. The same Holy Spirit that lives in Peter as he's bold to preach the gospel to 3,000 people and they come to know the Lord is the same Holy Spirit that lives in you. And the same Holy Spirit that Stephen is connected with this entire passage is the same Holy Spirit that lives in you. And because we are not alone, and only because we are not alone, only because we are filled with the Holy Spirit, and being filled with the Holy Spirit, directly connected to Jesus Christ in his life, in his death, and his resurrection, can we boldly exclaim, yes, I'm prepared to die because I've been crucified with him. And yes, I'm prepared to live because the Holy Spirit now lives in me. We must not walk into trials and persecutions on our own because we are not alone. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so as we walk away this week, as we walk from church here this Sunday, may we boldly live for Christ. May we boldly die for him on a daily basis as we seek to make him known because we are not alone. We are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are not alone. We thank you that you have sent the Holy Spirit upon us to unite us with your Son in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. Father, I pray that as we walk away from church today that we would be reminded that whatever trial may come, whatever persecution may come, we can boldly walk into it because we are not alone, because we are filled with your Spirit we rest in that truth today. In Jesus name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.